Welcome to this podcast from Christchurch London. For more information and resources, please go to ChristchurchLondon.org. I'm really excited about today. We are today kicking off a mini-series, a four-week series in the book of Ruth, which is just this beautiful little book in the Old Testament nestled between uh, Judges and 1 Samuel. And if you can make the time over the next month, then I really would recommend reading it all the way through in one sitting, just like you would any other short story. You can see from this next slide that it is not a long book. Um, That is it, just that. It'll take you about 20, 25 minutes And actually, reading it that way will help you to engage with it as it was originally intended. Too often we can go to the Bible and just try and pluck out kind of inspirational quotes from it. But actually, what we're meant to do is read it as a real story with real-life characters going through real-life issues, teaching us about a real faith in God. And it has to be said that I would say, unfortunately, we're not always encouraged, I think, to engage with Ruth in a good way. I would say that if you have ever read um, or read anything on the book of Ruth or ever heard someone preach about the book of Ruth, I would say chances are you've probably heard someone kind of give you the impression that Ruth is kind of like the Bible's romantic novel, as if we're supposed to kind of take a break from this like amazing kind of um, redemptive work that God is at and just kind of settle down and read this kind of Cinderella-like story about a poor peasant girl who was rescued by her noble prince. And that is really... Uh, just not really what it's about. Um, I've even heard some preachers uh, basically say Boaz, who we'll meet next week, like they, they put him as the hero of the story, despite the fact that this book is named after the main hero of the story. And I even heard some preachers kind of use it as a launching platform into talking about singleness and dating and how women can kind of uh, look for the man that they really want and kind of go about pro- propositioning them, which is just not in the book like that. It really isn't. I think it says much more about those preachers and their commitment to this kind of damaging narrative of marriage being the goal for all, and especially women not being complete until they have met their Prince Charming. That is not in the book of Ruth, and you'll be pleased to know that is not in the Bible as well. And hopefully, as we work through this book together, we will see over the next month that Ruth isn't so much a love story as it is a story about love. Because don't get me wrong, this book is about love, just not the romantic kind, not the eros type of love. This book is about agape love. It is about costly, sacrificial love, love that can transform even the darkest of our situations. And that kind of love is described both here and in other parts of the Old Testament as hesed. Now, I think it's pronounced hesed, but if I say that all day, I'm not going to make four services. So we're just going to go with hesed. And hesed is probably translated in your Bible as loving kindness or steadfast love or sometimes just as love. And it's a description of what happens when someone with the power and the resources to make a difference chooses to make a difference in the life of someone who is desperately in need. Chooses to get involved and stay involved in a person's life in a hands-on, up-close and personal kind of way. As one Bible scholar puts it, hesed is not merely love, but loyal love. Not merely kindness, but dependable kindness. Not merely affection, but affection that has committed itself. And I don't know about you, but I think we could all probably do with a little more hesed love in our lives, couldn't we? I mean, wouldn't it be a greater not only understand, but to experience more of the hesed love of God for us? 
Wouldn't it be amazing to become the type of person that Hesed loves other people easily? To help form this into a community of people that not only Hesed love one another, but Hesed love the people of this great city that we find ourselves in. Well, my hope is that 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 is going to be the result of us working through Ruth. Because whilst the actual word Hesed may only appear three times in the book of Ruth, the book of Ruth is saturated with this idea. It is soaked in it. Almost every interaction between the main characters displays this type of love. So that said, let's get started. We're going to read Ruth chapter 1, verse 1, starting at the beginning. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, his wife's name was Naomi, and the two names of his sons were Malon and Kilion. Now I think if we didn't know the title of this book, then at this point we probably think that this story is going to be about the men of this family. Because, well, because it's always a story about the men of a family, isn't it? But then we get this, verse 3. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they had lived there about ten years, both Malon and Kilian also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. The story is turned right on its head right at the beginning, and we discover that instead of it being a story about the men of this family, it is the story about the women, specifically Naomi and Ruth, mother-in-law and daughter-in-law, both women who have been widowed and both women who are childless. One because her sons have died and the other because she has experienced 10 years of painful infertility. Which means that this is actually a story about women considered by their culture to be worthless. Because Naomi and Ruth's culture effectively placed a value on a woman by her relationship to the men and specifically whether she could produce sons. And so if you didn't have any sons or weren't able to produce sons, then you were considered as nothing within that culture. And not only that, but... Then, as now, widows were some of the most vulnerable people in society, almost completely without economic power, without any kind of social power, actually without a voice. The Hebrew word for widow, almoner, actually comes from the root alam, which means mute or unable to speak, which is quite telling, isn't it? Over the last few weeks, I have been working my way through the heartbreaking and anger-inducing book, Half the Sky, by uh, two Pulitzer Prize-winning journalists, Nicholas Kristof and Cheryl Wooden. And in it, they document the abuse, the sexual abuse, the violence, the neglect that women around the world still suffer today. And they give compelling evidence that there has been and still is an ongoing gendercide, with poor, illiterate, single women like Naomi and Ruth bearing the brunt of much of the sexual abuse and assault, much of the gender-based violence, and actually this kind of fatal apathy when it comes to medical care, especially reproductive medical care. Professor Mahmoud Fathala, who is quoted in the book, he's a former president of the International Federation of Obstetricians and Gynecologists. He says, women today are not dying because of untreatable diseases. They are dying because societies have yet to make the decision that their lives are worth saving. Just cost too much, too much hassle. And in Half the Sky, it's argued that one of the most single effective ways of raising the life expectancy for women and actually their life chances and the quality of their life is just to change the way that they are viewed by their culture so that they are seen as intrinsically valuable and equal to the men. And this is just what the book of Ruth does. Here we have an ancient story, thousands of years old, that gives voice to and engages with 
the experiences, the theological questions, the doubts, the fears of women like Naomi and Ruth, and places them front and center. This book even ends at the end, in end of chapter 4, with the women of Bethlehem praising God for Ruth and saying that Ruth is worth far more to Naomi than seven sons, which even today is a remarkable thing to say. In the Gospel of Ruth, which is Caroline Custis James's excellent commentary on this book, and actually the inspiration for a lot of my talk today, she says, I don't think that we fully feel the force of just how unusual, how countercultural it is for an ancient culture to elevate widowed, barren women to a starring role within its historical narrative. There is nothing like this in the ancient world. I mean, Ruth even passes the Bechdel test. Just a show of hands, anyone aware of the Bechdel test? So the Bechdel test is a very simple way of evaluating whether the portrayal of women in a particular film or book is kind of good or bad. A very simple test. Just ask three simple questions. One, does it have more than or equal to two named female characters? Two, do they talk to one another, do they interact? And three, do they talk to one another about anything apart from the men of the story? And you would be amazed how many films fail this simple test. So BetchdaleTest.com currently have about 8,000 films in their database, and only about 60% of them pass all three tests. And worrying for us as a family, Disney does even worse. Out of their 41 films, only about 50% of their films pass this test, which is really sobering, isn't it? Considering that Disney is often targeted towards young girls, and they're not giving them any kind of positive female role models. Although you will be pleased to hear that our girls' two favorite films, Frozen and Moana, both passed the test, which I'm very happy about. Although, very sadly, my favorite Disney film, Beauty and the Beast, does not. What can you say? But then, I guess my point is that we still live in a culture where the stories and the experiences and the voices of women are not equally valued. I mean, just think about how many women have to come forward with stories of abuse by powerful men like Harvey Weinstein before they are given a fair hearing, before they are believed. And yet here we have this ancient story, understood by Jews and Christians throughout history to be inspired by God, that not only passes the Bechdel test, but fully engages with the stories of Naomi and Ruth, and reveals that despite the, all that is going on with them, despite what their culture may say about them, and how their culture sees them, God, the creator of the universe, the almighty, sees them and knows them and cares about them and has a plan for their lives. And I hope that this doesn't come off as patronizing or as overly earnest, but I think it is important to clearly state that we understand that the scriptures teach women have been made in the image and likeness of God, which means women have been equally called to fruitfulness. And they have been equally given the calling of ruling and reigning over all of creation and are equally invited into relationship with God and his people, which means that each and every woman is intrinsically valuable and incapable of insignificance. No matter how you women may feel that you don't measure up to the standards that our culture, even our church culture sometimes, can place upon you, no matter what has happened to you in your past, the things that have been done to you, the things that you have done, the Bible teaches that you are loved and you are precious to God, and actually, you are important to his plans for the renewal of the whole world. Which means that you are important, and you are precious, and you are valued to us as a community too. 
And our community will never be what we want it to be unless you women are released and supported and encouraged by all of us, unless we work out how to do that together to release and support and encourage you into becoming the people that God has made you to be. We are stronger with you in us, and we are really not strong unless we help you do all that God has called you to do. And this is just what we see happening in Ruth. So Naomi, Orpah, and Ruth are living at this point as kind of this unusual family unit. And Naomi gets word that there is food back in Bethlehem in her hometown. So she takes her two daughters-in-law and they start journeying back to Israel. But then on the way back, she stops. And she tries to send Orpah and Ruth home. It's almost as if as she is walking, she starts thinking about the life she is walking to. And she realizes that this is not a life that she wants to bring these two women that she loves into. And so in verse 8, she says, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness, that word again, hesed, as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. At that time in that culture, Ruth and Orpah were effectively Naomi's property. They had been purchased from their families when they were married to Naomi's sons. And so they were obligated culturally and legally to stay with Naomi no matter what. And so what is happening in this moment is actually an emancipation. Naomi is releasing them from their duty to her. She knows the life that she is going back to is going to be a hard life, a dangerous life, a life with no prospects for them. And so at incredible cost to herself, she sets them free. She displays hesed love towards them by choosing a harder life in order to give them the option or the possibility of a better one. And as she says this, Ruth and Orpah just break down weeping at the idea of being separated from her. Such is the love between them. And they say, no, we're going to stay with you. But then Naomi gives it to them straight. She says, look, there is no future for you with me. I don't have any more sons that you can marry. If you stay with me, you are committing yourself to a life of singleness and a life of childlessness. Almost certainly a life of poverty and hardship. You are committing to live as a foreign single woman in a foreign, dangerous land with everything that that could entail. No, my daughters, she says. You don't want any part of this. Escape while you can and go on and live a full life somewhere else. It's as if Naomi sees her life as this sinking ship, water coming in, about to capsize. And this uh, radical generosity, she says to her daughters-in-law, look, there's a lifeboat. Get on that lifeboat. Leave me. I'm going down with the ship, but you don't have to. Verse 14, at this, Orpah and Ruth wept aloud again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth then replies with one of the most beautiful and profound expressions of hesed in the whole of the Bible. She says, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. I love this. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. Sometimes there's just no arguing with people who love you well. And so the two of them journeyed back to Bethlehem. This is such a beautiful and a powerful moment. Ruth and Oprah are both confronted with the reality of what staying with Naomi looks like 
And it is bleak to say the least. And so Orpah, she does the smart thing. She does the sensible thing. She accepts Naomi's radically generous offer and she gets into the lifeboat and she sails back off, leaving the sinking ship. But not Ruth. Ruth does the unthinkable. She stays. She says to Naomi, I'm not going anywhere. Whatever happens to you is going to happen to you with me standing here right beside you. And I promise before the Lord, before Yahweh himself, that the only thing that will separate us is death. And so just like Naomi was trying to do to her, Ruth flips it around and displays Hesed love to Naomi. She chooses a harder life, a more dangerous life, a life that looked nothing like the life she dreamt of when she was a little girl in order to give Naomi the chance of a better one. You know, I think some of the people that most exemplify this type of love are foster parents. We're friends with a few people who have opened their hearts and their homes to children in desperate need of love, and we have just so much respect and admiration for them. And one of our friends who fosters recently posted on Facebook a post by a woman who runs a support group for foster parents. And it was attached to this picture of a little toothbrush, and it went like this. It took his left-behind toothbrush to undo me. I'm sitting here in a parking lot sobbing my guts out. He was mine for two and a half weeks, but those days and nights saw him smile, sleep through the night instead of freezing awake in terror, swing for hours on the swings my kids take for granted. He called me mama, and I told him every time I left that if I said I would come back, I would. I prepared him for his new home as well as I could, but now it's nap time and his new mum says he misses me. I texted a picture to show her, to show him. The number one thing people say to me is I could never do foster care. I would get too attached. Guess what? I'm just like you. I absolutely get attached. I wonder where they are now. They visit me in my dreams and sometimes I wake up with a wet face. It hurts. Sometimes in those moments it hurts to breathe. You know what I know more though? I'd rather these sweet babies know my love than never know it. I would carry their hurt inside my own adult heart if it meant there was less in their tiny sad one. There is absolutely no reason that an eight-year-old who watched his mother be murdered not know the love of a stranger. It's absolutely criminal that a two-year-old sit in a social worker's office in dirty clothes because I'm afraid I get too attached. I got attached. Getting attached has been the greatest pleasure and honor of my life. Isn't that incredible? You know, I doubt there is anyone out there thinking about becoming a foster parent that says, you know what my life is really missing? What would make it complete? Sleepless nights and cleaning up someone else's poo and arguments and broken appliances and heartache and pain. My life is missing all of those things. I know what I'll do. I'll become a foster parent. No, no one thinks that way, but they take on all of those things because by taking on those things, they know that they have the opportunity to love a child back to life. They get to write over the lies that these little ones have been told with the truth that they are loved and that they are precious and they are worth something, that they are wanted. They get to literally rewire their little brains so that they see and experience the world in a different way. Just like Ruth, foster parents do hesed. They choose an objectively harder, more costly, more painful life in order that they might give their foster kids the chance of a better one. But obviously, it's not just foster parents who do this. As some of you may know, um, Jackson, the girls, and I live with a good friend of ours, Davina. And we have been renting a place together for the last nine months, which has been incredible, except for two months into this, 
uh, Davina announced that she was going to become a vegan. I mean, if we want to talk about Hesed love, let's talk about a meat lover giving up meat in order to share family meals with a vegan. But I don't bring up this to talk about my own Hesed love, as great, obviously, as that is, but to talk about her Hesed love for her kids, because Davina is a head teacher of a school in Lewisham, which is only a recent thing. Last year, she was assistant head, and then her head had to leave suddenly, and so she was promoted to deputy head. And then a few months ago, the deputy head left as well, and she was offered the role of head of her school, which is just an amazing, amazing vote of confidence in her abilities, but also this huge step up in terms of well, pretty much everything. And I remember having conversations with her and her talking last year about how she was really happy with her life as it was. She didn't want to be head. Head was just too much hassle, too much work, and she could do what she wanted being assistant head and everything kind of fit into her life. But then this opportunity came up, and as she prayed about it, she felt like this is something that she should do. And so she decided to take on more in order to love the kids of her school better. She did a Ruth. She said, I know this is going to cost me, and cost her it does. I mean, she's up before we get up. She's back after the girls have gone to bed. I mean, these are long hours that she is doing. But not just that. It's the weight of responsibility that she's taken on. In charge of a whole school, hundreds of kids, staff, and actually the, the families of those kids as well. And she chose to take all of that on upon herself. And she'll come back from work every now and again talking about kind of these horrible things that happened and the interactions that she's had to have with the kids and getting the police involved and all of this. She is living now with a greater weight on upon her life, a greater weight upon her time resources. But she loves it because she knows that by doing that, she gets to have influence upon a whole community. She did a Ruth and she has been bossing it ever since and we could not be more proud of her. Last week, Davina brought home a book from school called The Female Lead, which is uh, interviews with 60 amazing women doing very inspiration, awesome things around the world. And I was reading through that, and I came across the story of Nimco Ali. Nimco was born in Somalia, but had to flee Somalia because of the war, and so has been brought up in the UK. And she had a very normal upbringing, like any other person, apart from when she was seven, she was taken on holiday and then became a victim of FGM and then brought home again. This completely kind of out-of-context thing happened to her, and the family never talked to her about it. It was never spoken about again. It was just kind of this painful, traumatic thing that had happened that she kept secret. But then she went to school in Bristol, and she met a whole bunch of other um, British families from Somalia. And 13 out of 14 of the girls she met had also, uh, uh, had also become FGM survivors. And at that point, she said she began to regard her silence about this as complicit in the practice of FGM in the UK. So after uni, she moved to London and she began speaking about her experience and began campaigning, trying to change the conversation around FGM to just something that's kind of this cultural practice that anyone outside of the culture can't speak into, to helping local and central governments and the police realize, that, realize what it is, which is essentially child abuse. And when NIMCO and the organization she started called Daughters of Eve started campaigning about this and started um, helping uh, to set up the NSPCC FGM helpline, she started getting a lot of pushback, a lot of criticism, a lot of verbal abuse, especially from those who use FGM to control and oppress women. And the first time her picture appeared in a national paper, she received death threats. And she remembers thinking, they're really going to do this. They're really going to kill me. And so she stayed in bed for two and a half days thinking, is this all really worth it? Do I keep on going or do I just keep silent? 
But then she started thinking about all the other girls just like her who would suffer just like her if she did nothing. She thought if a girl is taken away and goes through FGM and something happens to them and they disappear, which does happen, no one ever knows about it. But at least if they come for me and they attack me, the world will know. And so she got out of bed and she continued campaigning and trying to educate people with the goal of stopping FGM in the UK for good. Now she says in the interview, three generations of her family had been cut. Her grandmother, her mother, herself. But she was able to stop the fourth generation, her niece, from being cut. In one generation, FGM and her family went from 100% to 0%. And Nimco decided that helping that to happen for thousands of other girls and actually the generations that would come after them was worth all the abuse and all the hate mail and all the death threats that people could throw at her. Again, just like Ruth, Nimco chose a life that was harder and more costly in order to do hesed, in order to do costly love for thousands of girls just like her. I've got just one more story of a modern-day Ruth, and I make absolutely no apologies for the fact that this is about my eldest daughter, Olivia, who turns six tomorrow. So, yeah, she's gorgeous, isn't she? So, um... Uh, before Father's Day, Olivia's school invited all the dads to come in for a Father's Day lunch. And so I went in with Ariana, our three-year-old, and I'm sat there on their ridiculously small tables, their ridiculously low chairs, eating actually a surprisingly tasty lunch. So I'm sat there, and Olivia's next to me, and Ariana's opposite me. And then one of Olivia's little friends from her class, let's call her Nisha, Nisha comes and sits next to me on the other side. And so we're chatting over lunch. And then during the lunch, she turns to me and says, Tim, can you be my daddy too? Like, oh, so heartbreaking. And we're talking, and it turns out she'd never known her daddy. As she explained it, her daddy wasn't very nice to her mummy, and so her mummy wanted nothing to do with him. So she's never met him, um, and she lives just the two of them. And so she's like asking, can you be my daddy? And so I was like, I can for today. <laughs> Let's go out and play. But that was it. And then the next Sunday is Father's Day, and Olivia has helped to make me breakfast, which was incredible. I think lots of guidance. Scrambled eggs with no eggshell, winner. And um, we're sitting there, just the two of us. So Arian is not up yet, and um, Jax is getting ready for church. And I'm, I think I, I need to make this a moment. Like if you're a parent, you know that every now and again you want to make moments. And so I look her dead in the eyes, like, Olivia, look at me. I said, Olivia, I love you so much. I love being your daddy so, so much. It's one of my most favorite things in the world. Being your daddy is one of my most important jobs. I love you, sweetheart. And I'm looking to see if this is sinking in, if this is hitting home, because more than anything, I want her and Ariana going out in the world knowing that they are loved by their dad. And as I'm looking at her, she gets really quiet and like kind of closes in on herself and starts looking down at the table and then starts crying. And these aren't happy, my dad loves me so much, isn't that great tears? These are sad tears. And so I say to her, Olivia, what's wrong, sweetheart? She says, I'm just thinking about Nisha and how she doesn't have a daddy, and today must be really sad for her. And then she starts crying. I'm like, oh my gosh. Now, I know I'm quite biased, but isn't that the most precious thing you have ever heard? This little five-year-old taking her friend's pain into her own heart and feeling the pain that she is feeling. And that's what loving with a hesed type of love does. It opens us up to that. Because if we choose to commit ourselves to people for the long term, we are going to walk with them through their hardest moments, through moments where they do ridiculous, stupid things that tear their life apart. 
and moments where horrible things are done to them and moments just where life happens and they feel the most horrible pain. And it is our role as their friends to try and take some of that pain off them. You know the saying, a problem shared is a problem halved. Well, that's only true if you take half the problem. And that's what we do. That's what Olivia was doing. She was taking the pain of her friend into her own heart. And that is what we have to look forward to. If we want to be people who love with a Hesed type of love, then we are going to be people who feel more pain than maybe other people. Because we are people that don't just feel our own pain, but willingly choose to feel other people's pain as well. We are looking for a life of more sadness in some ways, more pain. Yes, there is joy in it, but that is a reality of loving with a Hesed type of love. So how do we love like this? Is it just that some people, like my five-year-old, who obviously gets that from her mum, is it that some people have this kind of innate way of loving people like that? Or is it something we just have to try much, much harder at and kind of discipline ourselves, and it's all about willpower? How do we become people who constantly choose to make our lives harder in order to make those around us, their lives, better? Or maybe it might be helpful to think about how it was that Ruth was able to love like this. And I think it probably had quite a lot to do with the fact that Ruth the Moabite came to know the Israelite Naomi's God. In verse 17, when she makes her vow to stay with Naomi, she says, May the Lord deal with me severely if even death separates us. And the word she uses there, the Lord, that's not kind of a random name of God. That's not one of the Moabite gods. That is the name Yahweh. That is the name that God had described himself to Moses on the mountain to the Israelites. When he says to Moses, In Exodus, he says, My name is the Lord, my name is Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, abounding in hesed and faithfulness. And after 10 years of living with Naomi and hearing Naomi tell stories of this God abounding in hesed and watching Naomi model that love to her, watching her walk through the death of her husband and her sons and the way that she loved her and Orpah, she had become convinced that at the heart of the universe, there was a God who loves. And so when she reaches that fork in the road and she can say, I can go with Naomi and her God or go away from her, she chooses Naomi and her God. She chooses the God of love and the woman that introduced her to him. Ruth was able to do hesed towards Naomi because she had come to know the God who abounds in hesed. And if that is true of Ruth, how much more could that be true of us who have seen the embodiment of Hesed love in the person of Jesus Christ? In the beginning of his gospel, uh, John writes, the word Jesus became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, John's full of grace and truth there is the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew abounding in love and faithfulness. And in this sentence, John is scandalously and incredibly equating the Jesus he knew with the God who had revealed himself to the Israelites. You see, the story of Ruth and Naomi hasn't been given to us just to inspire us how to live, although it does. It has been given to point us towards the one who would not only fully embody Hesed love, but can also empower us to live that way too. The Hesed love between Naomi and Ruth and Ruth and Naomi, incredible and as worthy of admiration and imitation as it is, is only a shadow 
of what was to be revealed in the life and death of Jesus. Jesus is the true and better Ruth, who chooses to make his life infinitely worse in order to make our lives infinitely better. He is the true and better Ruth who's committed himself to loving us, not just knowing his life could involve suffering, but knowing that at the end of his life there awaited the cross. He is the true and better Ruth who says to each one of us, where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. And not even death can separate us. If we want to love like Ruth and Naomi, and like a foster parent, and like Davina and Nimco and Olivia, if we want the strength to make our life harder in order to make other people's life better, then we need to do what Ruth did. And we need to fix our eyes upon the God who abounds in Hesed and receive from him the power to love like he does. Maybe I can have the band back. We are going to end our time together by taking communion which is a way for us to remember and reflect upon the Hesed love of Christ that led him to the cross for us. We're going to remember his sacrifice, how his death defeated the powers of sin and death that keep us enslaved and entrapped, how he frees us and enables us to live with him and to live like him. And we're going to do that by doing what the church has been doing for thousands of years, by taking bread and wine symbolizing Jesus' body broken for us and his blood poured out for us. But taking communion is not just an act of remembrance on our part. It's also an act of receiving. By taking the bread and the wine, we are willingly choosing to come to Jesus with open hands. We come forward with nothing in our hands, aware of our need for him, aware of our need for forgiveness, our need for grace, our need for power to live a different way and actually full of faith that he is willing and able to meet us today and give us those things. So if you are here today and you want to remember his sacrifice and receive from him afresh, or maybe even for the first time, this Hesed type of love, you are more than welcome to join in as we join in with this ancient practice. And the band are going to lead us in worship, and as they do that, we're going to pass out bread and wine. Just keep hold of those we're going to take this all together in a moment's time, but I wonder if we could stand. So, going to be a prayer that comes on the, on the screen behind me, and I wonder if we could just start this time by praying this prayer together. Jesus, we thank you for your loyal love and your dependable kindness. We thank you for choosing to take our pain and our sin upon yourself in order to see us restored and set free. We recognize that we are in need of you and the forgiveness and new life that you bring. With faith, we receive your love and we ask that you would reform us into your image, that we might love you and those you've put in our lives with the same dependable kindness and committed affection. Amen. Let's sing together. Thank you for listening. For more information or for further podcasts and downloads, please visit ChristChurchLondon.org.